Hello and welcome to episode two of the Propagandopolis podcast. Today I'm speaking with one spice bag as he's known online. We're going to be talking about the Northern Irish murals that were painted during the conflict in Northern Ireland, particularly the Troubles started sort of in the late 60s and lasted until the 90s. Spice bag is a writer and researcher from Ireland. He's the editor of Skag magazine, an Irish cultural and political magazine, and he is also a designer for Popular Front. As you will hear, he has an immense knowledge of the conflict in Northern Ireland and the many, many thousands of murals that were painted throughout the conflict. And you can find him on Instagram at spicebag.exe. I hope you all enjoy the podcast. So thank you for speaking with me today, Spicebag. Um, I thought we could maybe start off with you doing a bit of scene setting and giving a bit of background information to the conflict. Um, you can go back as far as you want. I imagine quite a few of my listeners will already have an above average level of knowledge of this conflict already. So yeah, you know, explain away and maybe go up to the to the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, yeah. So it like the the context um like that we're going to be discussing kind of uh murals and stuff in uh like the the, the phenomenon of murals in ireland uh political murals and like uh paramilitary murals and stuff like that uh exists nearly entirely in um uh the kind of the british controlled area of ireland uh called northern ireland uh it's not really a phenomenon in the south as much um where i lived uh, I'm so I'm from I'm from the south I'm from the Republic uh, near Dublin and uh, in the area where I lived where I grew up there was one kind of wall uh, kind of outside uh, on the motorway where I lived that would sort of have the names of say political prisoners that, that were um, in British custody or you know different messages kind of but that was not really on the same level as you'd see in the north there like that and there was a couple of things like that around but on the north is on a completely different level and i suppose to give give a bit of background as to how the island got divided um i'd say most people most of your listeners for sure will be aware of the conflict kind of between ireland and the irish people and britain and the english people and different types of uh you know uh iterations of that conflict have been going on for a long time very long time like the first invasions of of ireland from england like where under the normans they took place in like the 12th century and then uh, like over the years there's been various different uh kind of wars and and sort of you know um events that have kind of driven the conflict along to to it's in its current kind of phase now where there's a there's a country that's the united kingdom and a country that's the republic of ireland and then there's a, a divided kind of area in the north um but uh i suppose what the, the most relevant thing to that conflict the most the most relevant kind of historical background to that would be the plantations uh and i won't go too mad into this but uh, essentially, uh, did the British decide or the the English decided, um, kind of in the in the sixteen hundreds that they wanted to, uh, sort of remove the last vestiges of kind of Irish political structure and power. Um, so Ireland would have prior to that kind of worked as like a clan system, kind of similar to the one in Scotland, where there would have been like different clans, different families, and they would have kind of 
uh, ruled over areas of land and they wouldn't have had you know any allegiance to you know the the occupying kind of british forces that would have been based around dublin and the, the surrounding areas and um, so the brits decided like we need it we need to break that system and the way they did it was obviously through conventional warfare like going and fighting these clans but then later on um they tried a couple of plantations and essentially what that was was bringing uh settlers from the uk uh protestant uh settlers and putting them in you know areas around uh like, like areas where there was a lot of um kind of irish identity uh left or an irish political power and the, the the kind of the worst for that in their eyes was ulster the the northern province that, that was where the most powerful kind of gaelic lords were based and after kind of driving them away um they began the plantation of ulster and that that was kind of like a a double uh double win sort of for britain in the sense that they could re they could change the demographics of the north in favor of the british crown but they could also remove kind of unsavory or on whatever like rebel sort of elements from the border region between scotland and england so they could essentially grab these people and uh, that they they were kind of having trouble with uh, in terms of like what now just kind of keeping them under control and moving them over and that created like this kind of um separate sort of identity for some people in the north where they they consider themselves um British like they don't consider that they're there they were kind of like the 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 colonial um addition to the to the land and they weren't uh, they didn't consider themselves native they didn't consider themselves to kind of share a culture with the uh, with the local population and then kind of fast forward a little bit that identity develops there's a couple more wars and a couple more kind of th- like I, want, I don't get too much into that because we'd be here all day but essentially there's a a large rift kind of forms between these people so you have a couple of things like um uh the british government introduced uh penal laws which essentially prevented catholics in ireland um and catholic would have been roman catholic would have been the religion of nearly all the native irish population so uh catholics were essentially banned from a bunch of things so they weren't allowed you know attend school uh, they weren't allowed to own weapons they weren't allowed to own horses they weren't allowed to own land in some cases that kind of thing and uh, yeah essentially creating this kind of apartheid sort of system and uh, this is something that actually uh, Protestants in Ireland were also subjected to uh, Presbyterians and stuff like other uh, kind of varieties of Protestant that weren't in favour with the uh, the government in England but uh this created a massive divide and then uh, I think uh, Presbyterians kind of got these laws taken away sooner. Uh, they, they were kind of emancipated first and then it wasn't until um, like much later, like the 1800s, the Catholics were fully emancipated. Um, so yeah, you have this massive divide essentially between the two groups um, and for this entire time since the kind of plantation or since, since say 1800 where Ireland was officially incorporated into the uh, the Union of uh, you know like the United Kingdom. Uh, there wasn't really like as much of a visible division. Like there wasn't really Irish nationalism. There had been a few revolts, and there was a there was kind of an idea of 
like sovereignty but i guess like that would have happened in a time where nation states in europe were only sort of starting to coalesce uh, in the sense that we know them today so that like the idea of irish nationalism and irish independence only really started coming into play kind of at the end of the 19th century so uh you had a couple couple things going on then so as people were sort of coming to this conclusion that they, they kind of wanted to be independent and this started picking up steam um there was a sort of gaelic revival um a lot of irish culture had either been made illegal so it actually been made criminal to you know speak irish uh that kind of thing or like uh, uh, yeah essentially the culture had just been uh kind of destroyed um the famine didn't help um in the 1840s there was a huge famine where ireland's population dropped by half and it still hasn't recovered um to the number it was at in 1840 um and the, the, all these things kind of combined together to to really damage irish culture and irish identity and at the turn of the century then there was this movement um to kind of re-establish Irish culture and you see this in like a lot like Irish literature at the time kind of um J.M. Singe and uh, Yeats and who like the, these kind of people they would have been involved in kind of uh, the literary aspect of this um then you would have had uh, the the Gaelic Athletic Association so essentially like the native sports of Ireland started to be played again and stuff and and this kind of created a, mo- a movement across the country where people started identifying fully kind of as Irish again. The language started being spoken again, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, this sort of set them apart from this uh, the descendants of these kind of uh, planters in Ulster um, who would have considered themselves very much like not a part of that culture. Uh, so... Yeah, there, there, there was a couple of things that happened, uh, I suppose, that are relevant as well. Um, home rule came onto the uh, cards uh, in the 19th century. People wanted, towards the end of the century, people started advocating for home rule. So rather than independence, uh, they just wanted home rule like Canada or another region of the British Empire. And uh, this was put through... Um, parliament twice but it was vetoed twice by the house of lords and then it was put through a third time and i i think it's a rule uh i don't know i'm not sure if it's still a rule but i think it was a rule at the time that if something is vetoed three times by the house of lords then it automatically becomes law because it's like you know they're it's 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 going through parliament and then getting vetoed so um uh, people obviously want it so uh, essentially the by uh, 1912 um the uh the, the home rule act had been vetoed twice and that meant that in 1914 it would come into effect so ireland would become like a self-governing entity uh as part of the british empire and this caused a lot of kind of anxiety in the uh in the community the, the uh, yeah, like the Protestant Unionist community in the north. Um, so in 1912, they uh, uh, created this kind of 
what do you call it like a, peti- a petition nearly or a, a yeah like a yeah like a petition kind of it was called the solemn league and covenant and essentially it outlined kind of this danger to the material wealth of ulster which is the, the province of ireland that is the northern part of it uh, where they live and they 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 thought home rule was an extremely bad idea and they kind of said in it that there's a hundred thousand uh kind of men in ulster ready to fight against this uh, Home Rule Act, if it happens, and uh, I, I think about 500,000 people signed it. And this was a big kind of, uh, I suppose the first kind of show of force to the uh, Irish identity um, and the British government, like they, they wanted to resist, they wanted to remain kind of this on self-governing region of Britain they didn't want to be taken away into a, a self-governing uh, kind of Catholic uh, state um, obviously the Home Rule Bill didn't uh, didn't end up happening uh, because 1914 the First World War breaks out uh, there's not really much time to start uh, kind of rejigging the uh, the uh, governmental kind of structure of Ireland so it just kind of gets swept to the side a lot of people are very fucked off about that in Ireland. A lot of people go to fight from both communities. A lot of loyalists go to fight, um, obviously, uh, for Britain they uh, and, you know, fighting places like France and all. Uh, a lot of Irish nationalists uh, also go to fight um, and in the hopes that uh, kind of by doing this, they'll get a reward of home rule afterwards. Um, and about halfway through the war, the sort of unexpected happens. Uh, in 1916, there's a rising in Dublin. So Dublin is the capital of the Republic of Ireland. And uh, there's a rising. So um, members of a couple of groups, uh, the Irish Citizens Army, uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood uh, and the IRA kind of, uh, and the Irish volunteers uh, attack uh, kind of, different areas around Brit- or around Dublin. Uh, so they seize the GPO, the General Post Office, they seize the Jacob's Biscuit Factory, uh, they seize a lot of streets, and uh, essentially uh, the, Brit- the Brits respond by sending uh, a lot of soldiers, uh, artillery, uh, they send a, a gunship uh, up the Liffey, uh, which is the river that runs through Dublin, and they kind of start shelling uh, these guys, and eventually they kind of round them up after a couple of days of fighting, round them up, take them to Kilmainham Jail, and then they just kind of shoot them all without um, asking kind of or, or a trial or any kind of the due process that kind of would be expected. Um, and that turns a lot of people on to the idea of Irish independence. Uh, I think prior to that, even even while the rising was happening, like it's built in Ireland as quite a patriotic sort of... Uh, event uh sort of like where the, the nation sort of rose up but i think in reality it was more a few people with a kind of very radical agenda decided you know fuck this we're going to attack um we're going to attack the, the the british state and we're going to get independence and a lot of kind of passers-by or are just people who weren't involved were like what the hell is going on? like they didn't want anything to do with it they weren't like they were like what is going on they thought it was kind of like kind of more terrorism maybe than uh I think, but once those once those people were killed and kind of turned into martyrs, and it kind of demonstrated the sort of brutality or the lack of the lack of conscience 
that the British kind of deal with the Irish in a lot of situations. Um, I think a lot of people were like, okay, uh, and they were on board with that idea. And then this obviously raises tensions further in the North because now it's not just a home rule situation you're looking at. It's an independent state situation um, potentially on the cards and they don't want to get dragged into an independent Catholic state uh, where they feel their identity will kind of be destroyed. Um, so yeah, at that point you would have had the kind of the first murals going up. Uh, around that time, I'll, I'll get into kind of the, the the timeline of murals a little bit later, but um, essentially that 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 kind of uh, war of independence kind of snowballed into a civil war when the the British uh, offered a treaty, uh, so the British offered a treaty saying essentially like Ireland could be uh, independent uh, there was a couple of stipulations uh, like recognising uh, the British monarch as the head of state and uh, handing over a lot of ports uh, for military kind of stuff and also uh, ceding uh, the six counties in Ulster uh, so Ulster being a province where there's nine counties altogether what I would what like um Irish people in the Republic would consider like all of Ireland generally as Ireland like so yeah there's four provinces nine of uh, nine counties in Ulster and six of them are under British occupation and they're the ones that these uh, kind of loyalists in the north wanted to kind of hang on to and this was made a sort of part of that treaty that the um, uh, the Irish Republicans were offered in the south and this caused a split uh, between pro-treaty IRA, anti-treaty IRA, eventually the anti-treaty got beaten and the Irish Free State was formed. Um, then eventually nearly every other uh, provision of the uh, of the pro or of the treaty were dropped. So there was no, you know, we we stopped recognizing uh, British monarch as the head of state. We took back the ports, all that stuff. And Ireland started kind of drifted apart uh, a lot from Britain. Uh, and in the north, this kind of caused sort of like a, a Cold War situation where the North was founded on the principle that it was a Protestant state for a Protestant people. Um, and that was uh, something that they kind of wanted to hang on to. Like they, 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 they didn't want anything to do with the South. And, and for years, neither country kind of recognized the other. I, I don't think it was until the 60s that any diplomatic contact or even recognition of the other's existence was kind of made. Um, and yeah, uh, in the 1960s, uh, in the north, uh, obviously you have these, these kind of Protestant people, uh, who consider themselves British, but then about half of the population is Irish people who consider themselves Irish. And these people are still subject to sort of second class citizenship. Uh, in the north, uh, the country isn't really for them. They're kind of, you know, they wouldn't be allowed to work certain places. Uh, they wouldn't be allowed to make any display of their identity, that kind of thing. And like, kind of just, a, yeah, kind of sort of an apartheid structure in the north for Catholics. And this started creating tension in the 60s um, and resulted in kind of a civil rights movement taking off and the sort of violent response to that. Uh, by the British uh, authorities in Northern Ireland and then also the, the British state later on uh, kind of spiralled it into uh, like a full-scale conflict, uh, low-intensity conflict in terms of like there wasn't actually, you know, 
tanks and shit going around but there was you know people were getting blown up every day of the week um, there was constant shootings massacres paramilitaries fighting each other and, and that kind of continued uh, that continued up until uh, the late 1990s uh, and eventually a, a peace agreement was signed um, in 1998 so the Good Friday Agreement and that sort of I wouldn't say ended or solved the, the, the troubles in Northern Ireland but it certainly you know uh, plugged the leak of you know bloodshed and conflict and gave Catholic uh, nationalists and you know Protestant unionists and everyone in between uh, the ability to kind of participate in the government and you know use uh, kind of words instead of uh, uh, AK-47s and stuff to kind of get their point across and it, it's it's probably still unstable but it's a lot fucking better than it was like like in, in a massive way so that's that's kind of the, the full run-up of the kind of recent history. If we could jump back a century or so you mentioned that the first murals began to appear around the time of the home rule crisis which is sort of the early 1910s um, from what I remember reading, it emerged in Protestant loyalist communities around that time and, and the murals tended to celebrate things like the Battle of the Boyne and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the first mural, like the first recorded mural uh, was put up in 1908 and that was going to end the run up to this sort of home rule um, crisis that they were they were kind of coming up against. And the uh, the use of the kind of uh, William of Orange uh, motif um, is, uh, I think, I think it's the most widely spread. It's or the most commonly used uh, over the course of the entire history uh, within loyalist murals is uh, imagery uh, revolving around um, uh, William of Orange, or uh, if there's a couple of other things as well. But William of Orange is a is a very important kind of figure. Um, William of Orange being uh, the Protestant uh, king who fought uh, King James, who was the Catholic king, at the Battle of the Boyne um, in uh, 1698. And uh, he won. And this became like kind of a... Uh, kind of a, a July 4th moment for... Uh, Ulster loyalists uh, in in the sense that they'd beaten they'd like they'd beaten the Catholic Irish they'd beaten you know and then now they had a claim on the land um, and he's kind of a huge symbol of, of that kind of identity um, so the first murals go up of him and and it's kind of this expression of you know we, we're us um, you know uh, the, he wouldn't have been overly important to any other community except theirs so it's kind of it's he's very much a symbol of this uh, community and um, they start throwing up murals of him and they're actually the only people who put up these murals so obviously they like as you get closer and closer to partition and then after partition the kind of frequency of these goes up and it's kind of to identify a protestant area and uh, this happens a lot more when uh, Catholic workers, uh, say like rural Catholics, start to move into the industrial centres of Belfast and such and uh, look for work. Um, this kind of creates a little bit of competition and there's obviously friction between the two identities. So neighbourhoods are already at that stage very segregated between, uh, you know, Protestant uh 
workers and and, and and whatever and then Catholic workers and then like to distinguish between the two communities they use you know symbolism like that but it was actually um, it was actually only loyalist murals that went up for most of the 20th century and that has a lot to do with the kind of um, uh, sort of segregation and the sort of oppression faced by the nationalist community like uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't allowed, uh, it wasn't cool with the uh, Stormont government to display anything Irish. It was even signed into law, I think, in like 1952 um, or 1954. Uh, the Flags and Emblems Act, sorry, the Flags and Emblems Act that essentially prevented any Irish imagery uh, from being displayed publicly. So you couldn't uh, paint on a wall. Uh, anything Irish, like you could, you wouldn't get away with putting any sort of Irish uh, imagery up, uh, displaying Irish flags in public. It became a jailable offence uh, to do any of that, and um, so it was. It would it would have been it would have been fine for say a, a British person to go and do that on a wall, but if the, like a Catholic person was caught doing that, they'd be sent to prison and that kind of thing. And it wasn't until uh, it wasn't actually until the eighties that you start to see um, Republican murals being kind of uh, put up. Um, the uh, yeah, the first nationalist murals kind of all exploded uh, like over the summer of 1981. Um, so this was into the height of the kind of the conflict. So at that point you would have had loyalist murals everywhere, Battle of the Boyne, Red Hand of Ulster, uh, Union Jacks, all that kind of shit all over the walls in loyalist areas, but there was nothing else in nationalist areas. But in 1981, um, kind of as the uh, the hunger strikers, um, oh yeah, sorry for anyone who doesn't know. So uh, in 1981, there was a hunger strike in a, a pretty, uh, in Ireland anyway, uh, like kind of very famous um, hunger strike um, in which, uh, like a good few, uh, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but like a, a lot of uh, political prisoners essentially started a hunger strike uh, against the um, the kind of change of their status from political prisoner to just kind of criminal. So essentially Margaret Thatcher had changed these Republican prisoners' status from, you know, political prisoner and all the rights that entails, all the kind of, you know, you're treated better. Um, to criminal, uh, so you will be treated the same as a murderer or a rapist or something like that, and um, uh, they they hunger they started hunger striking against that. Um, a lot of protests were kind of tried, like dirty protests, like kind of not um, uh, not cleaning the cells and then uh, not accepting the food, and uh, yeah, uh, eventually uh, there was no budge from Westminster and uh, the hunger strikers died um, most famous or out of them is Bobby Sands uh, who was actually elected as uh, an MP I think for West Tyrone uh, to Westminster so he was a sitting member of, of the British government and he was starving to death in a British prison and that kind of I think was sort of another watershed moment similar to the um, Similar to the prisoners being executed after 1916, uh, Bobby Sands kind of just starving to death um, and the British government kind of not really caring uh, or acting in any way, uh, short of way more support for uh, 
the cause, the, the kind of uh, nationalist cause. And that summer, uh, there was a huge kind of influx of murals uh, in Republican areas and nationalist areas. So they started doing it too. And the, the first kind of, yeah, the first Republican murals uh, would have been um, uh, like paramilitary murals. So it would have been the IRA, uh, it would have been the hunger strikers, uh, or it would have been the other groups like the INLA, uh, things like that. Uh, stuff of a very kind of uh, intimidating sort of nature or like serious nature. Um, and then that prompted the kind of uh, Protestant uh, community to respond in kind. Um, and uh, they started putting up their own murals of, you know, UVF or UDA or their paramilitaries. And it, it sort of became a very like, like, yeah, the, the, the landscape sort of changed from these sort of cultural artifacts to being these very military kind of um, uh, things to demarcate the territory of certain groups. And um, another thing you see with the with the, the loyalist side around that time as well is, is the shift to kind of covering everything in paramilitary murals. And you start to see a little bit of a drop off of the traditional kind of British murals around that time like the battle of the somme and and maybe the union jack and stuff because at that time uh, a lot of these groups would have also been at odds with the british security forces um uh there was you know uh there was a lot of obviously not to the scale uh as not to the not to the scale of conflict as between the um the Irish Republicans and the British government, but there was conflict between the the loyalists and the British government as well. So you start to see more of a a paramilitary kind of identity sort of forming in the uh, in the loyalist community around that time. Um, and yeah, there's a, like a few of these like a really uh, really famous ones. Like there's obviously a few very famous ones of kind of the hunger strikers and stuff like that. Um, but I think one of the most striking ones in uh, Belfast is the Shankill Mona Lisa, which is this big mural on the Shankill Road, which is uh, kind of the heart of Loyalist Belfast. Um, it's the heart of Loyalist territory. And uh, it's it's kind of the local paramilitary group or the paramilitary group that controls the area is the UDA. And essentially this, this Shankill Mona Lisa is a big kind of uh, mural of a, a man, like a UDA man in a camo jacket and a balaclava aiming down the scope of a gun. And uh, no matter where you stand on the street, the barrel of the gun follows you, um, kind of like the eyes in the Mona Lisa. And that's that's a that's a fairly famous kind of paramilitary one. And then there's there's tons of others, like uh, mainly kind of featuring, yeah, like uh, men in balaclavas with AKs or uh, RPGs or... or um, or even kind of um, uh, people, especially towards the end of the kind of conflict, people who had done pretty messed up stuff. Like there's there's uh, there's murals in loyalist areas uh, commemorating people like um, Michael Stone, uh, who was a pretty notorious uh, uh, kind of killer, who um, kind of most famous for attacking uh, an IRA funeral, a Republican funeral. Uh, and throwing grenades into the crowd and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, not a very nice man. Uh, most recently, actually, he attempted to uh, break into uh, Stormont and uh, 
kill some politicians. Uh, some pretty freaky photos of that uh, after he was released from prison recently. Um, and that was within the past few years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he he was in there since you know he was put in there in the nineties, say, and uh, or the eighties, and he was only released not not in the past few months. Now I think it might have been twenty fourteen. He tried to get in, and uh, yeah, uh, some it was pretty intense stuff. Um, and then uh, another one would have been Top Gun McKeague. Uh, there's a mural kind of commemorating him and. Uh, like he would have been a, a pretty prolific um, kind of killer of civilians more than anything else. Uh, I think he killed about 15 Catholics and that was the point where the conflict sort of started descending into like really psychotic um, sort of ethnic conflict. Um, and, you know, and that those, those kind of pe- people being de- depicted on murals kind of shows a shift, you know, from like gone are the days of... Um, you know, uh, King Billy on his horse and all this kind of flowery Great Britain stuff. And now it's the, very much these paramilitary uh, figures who are, you know, pretty animalistic uh, people uh, being displayed. Um, so would you say that the bulk of the murals painted during the peak of the Troubles were sort of deliberately provocative and, and supposed to be intimidating? Um Yeah, and there's, interestingly, there's kind of a split uh, in, in, in the murals. So... Um, in 1985, um, one of the uh, Republican political prisoners uh, was released, and uh, his name was uh, Gerard uh, Mokara Kelly. Mokara being the Irish word for my friend, or the Irish words for my friend, uh, which is like a nickname. Um, and he was released from uh, prison, and in prison, political prisoners uh, would have in the Republican wing of the prison, uh, they would have really tried to kind of focus their um, their Irish kind of identity. So there would have been a lot of uh, Irish language kind of, you know, they, a lot of people went in there and they came out uh, fluent in Irish, like the word for um, uh, someone who speaks Irish in Irish is Gwelgar. Um, these people uh, would kind of be jokingly referred to among Irish speakers as jailgars. Uh, because they learned their Irish in jail. Um, so th- there was a lot of kind of emphasis on that and Irish literature and Irish art. And Jared Kelly was, uh, he, he would have learned uh, a good bit of kind of artistic stuff like Irish art um, actually from studying the work of Jim Fitzpatrick. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a very famous Irish artist. Um, he created the image of Che Guevara that you see everywhere on like, you know, lighters and shit like uh, everything the flag um just that kind of black print out face of Che Guevara um, but he also did a lot of um he also did a lot of kind of Irish mythological kind of stuff and uh Jared Kelly would have studied that in prison kind of recreated them whatever they had handy like toilet paper or grease paper that kind of stuff um and when he got out he started painting murals so this this and other artists kind of followed him in this, but it created kind of a shift between, or a split between the, the two communities. So the loyalist side continued putting up these paramilitary murals, uh, commemorating commanders are kind of issuing threats. Um, and the Irish kind of uh, nationalist side uh, started kind of branching out into other things. So you started to see um, 
uh, like Irish mythology taking a huge uh, kind of uh, role in a lot of the murals. Like the, a lot of them are like really, you know, like um, uh, Coo Cullen or Fionn McCool or, you know, the Children of Lear kind of myths, or Irish myths and legends. Um, some of them would be uh, completely unrelated to conflict, uh, like, uh, you know, Gaelic Athletic Association murals depicting like sports, like hurling or whatever. Um, and uh, this kind of, this kind of le- like kind of diluted a bit on the Republican side. So there's obviously still these big kind of paramilitary murals around, but there's a lot of these kind of cultural murals as well. Whereas the loyalist side didn't really get on that, uh, get on that buzz. Um, there was a few attempts, uh, a kind of like mimicking it. I think on the loyalist side, um, uh, for example, like uh, the the loyalists have a few murals up of Coo Cullen. Uh, I don't know if you know who Coo Cullen is, but essentially he's kind of the Irish equivalent of. Uh, like Hercules or, or some figure like that he's kind of a famous mythological uh, figure from the Ulster cycle so he's like very much embedded in Irish mythology like and um, uh, his name means the Hound of Cullen and you know it's a whole story there but very Irish uh, very Irish character and the, the loyalists kind of started to attempt to hijack that at some point. There's a couple of them, it didn't really take off, but there's a few loyalist murals around that are kind of a bit of a mindfuck because it's like, you know, uh, no surrender for God and Ulster. And then it's a picture of Coo Cullen. Um, and it says like defender of Ulster or whatever. And I think they, they, they sort of at some point decided they wanted to try and kind of rebrand Coo Cullen as some sort of loyalist. Uh, which doesn't really make a huge amount of sense but there's a few of them up didn't go too well kind of uh, I don't think it really meshes too well with the ideology um, uh, especially seeing as he's you know he's very much ingrained in Irish culture um, but uh, yeah other than that you don't see a huge amount there's a few uh, kind of weirdly enough uh, the loyalists have sort of a tendency as well to uh, create murals with cartoon characters Um sometimes dressed up as like uh you know loyalist bands me- band members like uh kind of in traditional kind of military outfits or uh uh paramilitary outfits um at like bart simpson or like uh some of the looney tunes and stuff which is kind of uh strange uh but they'd be up around the place as well uh less common now but uh they were that was a a thing that they went through but for the most part there isn't there isn't a huge amount of loyalist murals that aren't military focused, if that makes sense. They're like they're nearly all related to uh, paramilitary stuff, or or even just like normal military stuff, like the Battle of the Somme, uh, remembering uh, shit from like World War Two or whatever. Um, but the uh, there's definitely there's definitely a split, and there's way less uh, there's way less military kind of style murals now. On the Republican side, there might be a couple, um, kind of around the place that you might see, uh, but for the most part, uh, the loyalist or the sorry, the Republican side kind of has embraced sort of more cultural, uh, murals and stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and some of the the more famous nationalist murals uh, you mentioned Che earlier. 
uh, often depicted international revolutionary figures. Um, some of the more famous ones um, I remember have, for example, Che. There's a really famous one with Che. There's also one with Gaddafi, um, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, and I also posted one last week that had um, Emiliano Zapata, the, the Mexican revolutionary, um, James Connolly, and and somebody else. I think there was a bit of controversy over who it was. It was either an, an American farm workers union member or a generic Black Panther supporter. But yeah, I was wondering whether we could speak quickly about the sort of the the place and prominence of these international revolutionary figures in mostly nationalist murals in Northern Ireland. Uh, yeah, so there's um, there's a lot of and it, like it's it's exclusively really on the nationalist Republican side, uh, the kind of Irish um, side of things. There's a lot of solidarity with other kind of uh, revolutionary movements and just revolutionary figures, civil rights movements, all that stuff around the world. Because I guess if if you were to like without being biased, um, but if you were to frame the conflict, I guess the um the Republican side is the oppressed side, uh people would argue with me now about that but historically that's that's exactly the truth um they they were subject to second class citizenship um all the way into the 20th century uh, all the way up to the 1960s um uh, and yeah uh, and then an armed struggle against a extremely powerful government who didn't want to cede any sort of uh freedoms to them or uh, that, that that kind of thing so they, they they definitely find themselves kind of aligned with uh movements like uh, palestine uh there's a lot of a lot of kind of uh, uh movement or not a lot of kind of murals that display like uh pro-palestinian stuff or even like fighters ira fighters and then um palestinian fighters are like uh uh eta uh, in the basque country to be uh a lot of kind of uh, solidarity with those uh, Catalonia, um, uh, even like organizations like the FARC, um, all that kind of stuff, and then also like just you know, uh, Frederick Douglass. There's a Frederick Douglass uh, kind of mural in Belfast. It's quite famous. Um, kind of uh, anti-slavery uh, figure, and then uh, who else do you have? Uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, there was a lot for him that all that kind of stuff and that that's really tied into the fact that the republican struggle is is um is a struggle for you know um civil rights uh freedom liberty that kind of stuff uh you don't really see that on the other side actually sorry and, and this continues now this isn't just old news like there might be less you know support for eta and stuff now but you get like, recently with the with the stuff that's going on in gaza um You'll you'll definitely see a lot of solidarity with Gaza murals if there isn't already loads of them up. Uh, at the time of recording this, there will be, um, and then uh, like last summer you saw uh George Floyd. Uh, stuff like that. So it's it's solidarity, sort of. Uh, there's definitely an attitude, uh, not just in the north either, like all over the republic, um, of. Uh, I guess supporting these causes like I'm very like in a hardcore way like because Ireland is is Europe's only 
post-colonial state. Um, and that's kind of shaped the attitude of people, I think, in Ireland to, you know, be really, get really angry or at least get really supportive of kind of causes, struggles for freedom or, you know, struggles against, um, you know, power or uh, oppression, all this kind of stuff. Um, you don't really see that on the, uh, on the loyalist side as much. Uh, interestingly uh, enough, because of the support for Palestine, which has been a long running thing, uh, you'll often see kind of Palestinian flags displayed with uh, Irish tricolours um, uh, as a sign of solidarity. But that means in loyalist neighbourhoods, automatically you have to see the uh, Union Jack displayed alongside the Israeli flag. Um, and then there was one occasion where uh, the Israeli flag was displayed alongside the Union Jack um, beside a I think it might have been an SS flag or like some sort of Nazi uh, flag because there's obviously a white supremacist element to uh, to loyalism as well so that was kind of a weird one um, uh, kind of weird flags to, to display together an Israeli flag and, a, and, a, and an SS flag but, um, there's a bit of that uh, around there's a lot of support for Israel on the loyalist side I'm not sure they politically care really or know that much generally about it uh, or they're that invested in the conflict I think it's more just because the other side likes Palestine it's sort of like a football team sort of mentality they just you know then they pick Israel um, there would have been yeah a lot of support for um, like maybe other other kind of things like Rhodesia any, any sort of anything you can think of where like yeah, like South Africa as well. Yeah, yeah. And do we speak about Gaddafi? Oh yeah, there's 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 there's, there's huge uh, kind of respect for Gaddafi as well in in uh, kind of nationalist areas because uh, he would have provided a lot of weapons. He would have been kind of involved in a struggle against British uh, imperialism as well. Uh, uh, whatever you think of Gaddafi, like uh, but uh, he he kind of decided to back up the. Um, the IRA and uh, sent them a lot of weapons. So essentially they went from using kind of ancient kind of World War II era weapons to having access to some pretty serious uh, ordnance um, to go after the um, the British army with. And that was kind of mostly uh, Gaddafi. Yeah, and on a side note, how did they even smuggle all of those weapons in? Uh, just on, on boats. Uh, there, was a, there was a boat actually captured uh, by the Irish Navy uh, I can't remember the name of the boat, but it had tons and tons and tons of Libyan weaponry, everything from like fucking AKs to RPGs to, um, uh, you know, uh, heavier stuff like uh, surface-to-air missiles and like all that kind of stuff. And yeah, uh, and there was surface-to-air missiles and, and, and stuff like that and anti-aircraft uh, anti weaponry uh, smuggled in from... Uh, fucking Libya into Ireland and then you know kind of used against uh, British helicopters and, and stuff like that um, and uh, yeah yeah there, so there was a there was a there was a big relationship with Gaddafi and um, yeah it, it's it's you kind of see all this stuff depicted on murals I, I think now is especially now given the new 
sort of era as well you, you're, you'll generally see less violent ones um, or ones depicting paramilitary members you might see a lot more on the loyalist side uh, especially in areas where loyalist paramilitaries have control which is a lot of places um, like some of the loyalist paramilitaries uh, the UDA for example still has uh, almost 12,000 active members so they have huge control over uh, a lot of loyalist neighbourhoods um, but on the Republican side I think Republicanism has it hasn't gone away but it's certainly died down the provisional IRA has you know um, has kind of uh, disarmed and you know it's not as big a thing anymore they have uh, political representation in the form of Sinn Féin um, so there's less of a need for these kind of uh, big sort of paramilitary shows of strength or uh, you know the in intimidating things so you'll definitely see a lot more things that might just be like completely unrelated like like i don't know um shit that isn't like anything to do with the conflict uh being thrown up on murals uh or like you know solidarity things around the world or mental health awareness and stuff like that that isn't uh um but certainly on the loyalist side like if you go into an area like the shankill or um loyalist areas like in carrick fergus or something like that you will see uh fairly serious um murals depicting like uh you know the usual uh sort of lads with guns or like you know uh the big red hand of ulster with some like uh uh, oh yeah one they use a lot would be like kind of a, a british soldier from like world war one or like an old sort of loyalist guy from you know this the, the turn of the century or the start of the century and then you'll see like a, a balaclava guy and it'll be like one one struggle kind of tying it back to the to the og stuff yeah another another question that just popped into my head is who actually painted these murals was it um did they commission you know known professional artists and graphic designers to do it for them or did they just try and do them as best they could themselves or or was it mostly anonymous um what was the deal there's a lot of so i, I mentioned uh jared kelly earlier he would have been a, a very famous kind of painter uh, of murals on the republican side there is there's there's known sort of muralists on both sides a lot of them are fairly anonymous obviously you don't really want um, you know, a 15 foot uh, UVF man with a sawn off shotgun on your portfolio. So <laughs> yeah, a little signature at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So a few of them are fairly, uh, you know, anonymous. Um, but there is people uh, who are brought in to paint them often where they're painted is kind of up to the paramilitary. <laughs> uh, like if you don't want the 15 foot UVF man with a sawn off shotgun on the side of your house, you know, good luck. Um, because if it's you know if they want it up there, that's where it's going. Um, but uh, yeah, so like people from the community generally will paint them. Um, there's varying levels of kind of sophistication. Like some of them are fairly ropey. Um, you can tell that they're not really done by an artist uh, as such. Um, and then other ones will be extremely intricate on both sides. Um. And they they will be done by like kind of someone who's who's had a good bit of experience doing them. Um. Uh, yeah, I, I it's an interesting one as well. Uh, like something I want to touch on was the um. It isn't just murals in in Belfast. Like it, it's a weird. 
it's a, it's a weird kind of division. Like there's the division in identity uh, between the two, um, between the like you know the nationalists and the loyalists or the unionists or whatever like or Protestant Catholic whatever. But it's hard to. I think it's hard to kind of. I don't want to say anything like. To, pie in the sky, but it's it, it's sort of like hard to actually find differences between a lot of these people and I think that having visual reminders around the areas sort of helps to solidify identity if if that makes sense or it helps to indicate where territory is especially in these loyalist areas like for example I was talking earlier about the Shankill Mona Lisa that's a UDA mural slightly up the road from that would be uh, uh, like a uh, like a UVF area um, so there'd be UVF uh, I'm sorry for people who don't know as well the UDA is the Ulster Defence Association and the UVF is the Ulster Volunteer Force and they're two paramilitary organisations that were heavily active in the troubles on the loyalist side um, but those paramilitaries wouldn't be friends with each other um, they, you know that so that territory is like kind of marked off um, and it's marked off by like little indicators like flags, uh, murals, stuff like that. And then on a wider scale, um, like identity is marked off. So a Catholic area will have tricolors, Palestine flags, um, stuff like that. A loyalist area will have, you know, Union Jacks, Ulster banners, um, Israel flags, big paramilitary murals. Um, you'll have uh, you know stuff commemorating the first world war and you'll also have other things like curb painting like where they'll paint the curb uh, you know the curb along the side of the footpath they'll paint that you know uh, red white and blue for the English card sorry the British side and then you might see you know uh, green white and orange on the uh, on the nationalist side and other things like bunting uh, going up um, but yeah, it, it's a weird one as well because like your your identity, it's it's using it's 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 using people's like everyday landscape as sort of a war zone, like their visual, visual like reality as as a a theater of kind of combat between these two ideas, and that can extend to loads of other things as well. That could extend to your school uniform. Uh, if you go to a Catholic school, uh, you know you've visually you're marked off as you know part of that group likewise the other way around um things like you know where you get off the bus uh where you that that sort of thing so there's a there's there's a lot of a lot of things that like yeah are essentially being used to to mark out these divisions and then there's also physical markers of division in belfast as well um there's huge peace walls uh these very big sort of imposing uh, stone walls within like large like kind of mesh or like you know um fencing at the top and then nets on uh the, on either side kind of where wherever there's residential areas on either side of them to stop projectiles uh kind of hitting people's houses um and these these like walls physically divide like uh, the two areas and, and keep them segregated because if they weren't um in some areas that would lead to massive violence uh, and like we saw that recently um with the sea border uh protest that happened um there was uh there was a kind of an outcry of um 
uh, I don't know, uh, anger against the uh, Brexit uh, process that created a, like the, essentially the, the Brexit agreement that uh, Britain and the EU signed um, landed uh, Northern Ireland with a customs border in the Irish Sea. Uh, a lot of people in the loyalist community see this as like a a step away from union with the rest of Britain. They got very angry about it. They were kind of egged on by politicians. And then what you saw was uh, kind of these riots involving usually teenagers um, uh, where petrol bombs, fireworks, pieces of masonry were thrown at the police um, sort of other types of makeshift explosives. Um, uh, a bus was hijacked and set on fire. Um, yeah, it's fucking mad. Um, cars hijacked, like the drivers just told to get out. And then while that was happening, paramilitaries evicted, uh, like loyalist paramilitaries started evicting kind of Catholic families. So the, the tension is still very much there between the two communities so you like these these physical barriers exist and then also when that kicked off like that had nothing to do with the nationalist community like the brexit negotiations nothing to do with the nationalist community but as soon as the riot rioting started it ended up at an interface point on lanark way between the nationalist area and the protestant area and you know um uh, the gates were rammed with a car car was set on fire uh kind of youths from the nationalist area ran out to kind of throw things back at the, the, the Protestant youths and you could see how it could quickly kind of spiral into uh, uh, kind of bad stuff if there wasn't actually physical uh, things dividing the two communities. Yeah, and the, these sort of incidents aren't, you know, material for murals nowadays, are they? Um. Yeah, I, I was wondering, I, I kind of wondering that myself, like how, I, I'm not sure how much of a good look it is to have a bunch of 14-year-olds burning a bus. Like, I'm not sure if that's something you want to paint on a wall uh, in your community uh, certainly if someone had died uh, you know uh, or been killed by the uh, police or something like that you would, you'd see it but I think those clashes maybe they weren't as um, uh, sort of glorious as uh, you know the Battle of the Boyne or something like the, the um, you, you might get something I don't know but as for, to my knowledge no uh, not really um, I um yeah well to stay in the modern day um since the good friday agreement any murals that do go up aren't as you said as graphically provocative as the stuff you'd see at the peak of the troubles um there's sort of been from what i can see uh, a tourist industry developing around the murals now you know people are encouraged to go and see them i was wondering what well two questions really one is that true and two what's the current status of these murals what's their What's their legal status, especially ones like the Shankill Mona Lisa that you, you mentioned earlier? Well, uh, to the first part of that, um, yeah, there's a huge tourist industry uh, kind of around it because they are uh, like visually very striking and it's very surreal in a sense to see um, uh, like area like the, 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 uh, in some areas in Belfast you literally have a road like a street and as you're walking along it there'll be tons of you know uh, kind of Irish nationalist murals like Irish language um, Irish culture uh, whatever kind of social causes whatever and then you kind of cross through a little gate 
Um, and then on the other side of that gate, essentially, it just completely changes to, um, to you know, remember the psalm, you know, remember these guys, um, that kind of, and like British identity stuff. Um, and literally, it's, it's, it's the same road, it's the same street. Um, and there's kind of like an unspoken, it's marked by a little gate kind of that you can just walk through if you're a pedestrian. But um, it, it's uh, it, it's kind of like, yeah, it's it's quite weird. Like I'd highly recommend people go and, and look at them um, uh, if you have any interest. And they're, all, they're not just in Belfast, they're all over uh, the north. I think there's, I think there's somewhere in the region of 5,000 or three, I don't know, it's a couple of thousand in the uh, in the north, and nearly seven hundred of those are in Belfast. Um, there's other ones in uh, Derry. The really famous one in Derry is is just like um, the side of a house that says "You're now entering Free Derry." Um, that's that's often kind of uh, it's kind of a big visual symbol of Derry, and then they're, they're all over the north. There's lots of them, um, and yeah, some of them. Uh, some of them are, are cool because they're you know they're artistically very cool looking like just objectively they're nice and then others are striking because they're mad looking like you know what I mean like it's a it, they're very violent or they depict kind of you know uh, conflict um, but yeah there's a there's a huge kind of tourism uh, industry around them as for like the status of the murals like like the stuff like the Belfast uh, Mona Lisa uh, and and things like that and, and other paramilitary murals like I don't think anybody could take them down to be honest like you'd want to be fairly um, well resourced and well armed to uh, to get rid of that and um, people wouldn't let you do that uh, paramilitary organizations still have a huge amount of power um, in a lot of these areas and to do something like that will be considered an attack on the kind of culture um, uh, and that wouldn't fly um, you know even for the even for some even for the police to go in you know uh, would be extremely dangerous like I don't know if you've seen the police vehicles um, up north compared to the rest of the UK but they look like you know something out of fucking Starship Troopers, like they're fairly, they're fairly uh, hardcore. They're they're big kind of Range Rovers with um, uh, you know like uh, metal skirts to stop you throwing explosives under them. They're completely like fireproof. They're kind of riot proofed. Uh, like the people, have, it's a different kind of, different kind of state of affairs. There's not really anyone that could go, oh yeah, that's you know that mural's problematic or whatever. Like um, because you know it would just, it would cost you know probably cost the UK. A couple billion in fucking damages by the time you were done taking them down so um yeah they're like i think uh, i think like uh, there's a few ones that you might see coming down at times when an area that was staunchly kind of involved in the conflict has kind of moved on a bit like you know maybe the paramilitary doesn't have as much hold there anymore they don't really feel as under threat and you then you'll see paramilitary murals kind of recede and be replaced with you know something else or you might find areas where parents kind of 
in the area don't want their children sort of constantly exposed to this and if they have any kind of sway they might you know they'll still observe the kind of loyalist traditions and the or or the republican traditions um but they won't kind of they'll, they'll sort of direct the focus maybe away a little bit from you know direct uh military confrontation um like obviously in uh the north you have some pretty insane um kind of traditions one of them being uh like the 12th of july which is the like most probably the most stressful event uh for a law enforcement officer on earth um to be involved in uh essentially loyalist uh communities all over the north march uh organizations like the orange order uh which is sort of like a, a protestant uh supremacist kind of order and you know all these all these kind of uh they're yeah they're like kind of flute bands or whatever like they're like uh each each area each loyalist area will have a, a flute band uh kind of like playing music and marching in uniforms and banging drums and they'll be followed by uh you know members of the community and then often these parades kind of go into nationalist areas because they want to walk there because they you know they traditionally have walked in that area and then you know the police have to come in there has to be hundreds of police to stop you know it kicking off and it that kind of thing and then at the end of the day uh you know they build th- these or they had like over the in the weeks running up to it they build these absolutely gigantic bonfires with pallets like wooden pallets um and some of them are are, are so huge that you know um the uh the like whatever the council the local authority will try to um get them taken down because essentially it's it's uh it like some of them are very very big and if it was to go on fire and fall it could like you know you could see it falling onto like someone's house and you know that kind of thing like they're big and essentially they wait until the 12th of july and then they kind of cover it in you know maybe um uh what what are those things called where you kind of make a little thing of somebody and uh beat it up um an effigy yeah so effigies of uh of whoever they don't like maybe a Sinn Féin politician they'll use the election posters of Sinn Féin politicians they'll burn Irish flags and uh, burn you know stuff like that and they'll set them on fire and then on the Republican side as well you'll see uh murals also being constructed with um British flags and and uh, say things like the uh flag of the paratrooper regiment um who committed a, a lot of war crimes in um the north things like that uh or israel flags and stuff so they, they yeah everybody ends up burning bonfires and then you know often there's kind of violence and rioting and stuff like that so uh yeah i see so a lot of these murals are essentially untouchable then yeah there's no they, like they, it's it's a different state of affairs like there's a there's a there's a careful balance between government authority and it's kind of like what what's what's where is it worth just letting it be up or you know starting world war three like it's you know sometimes you're better off just leave letting this happen because it's easier than people getting hurt like it might be a terrible kind of sentiment they have like they might be you know uh it might be a republican mural commemorating somebody who you know bombed uh civilians uh in the uk uh, or it might be a loyalist mural commemorating someone who murdered, you know, Catholic mourners at a funeral. But it's easier to just let this, you know, let them have it. 
up because it's you know it's it's better than people fighting and it's the same with the bonfires same with the marchers uh it's you know you could stop it in maybe london um you could crack down on it but you know in in the north it wouldn't be worth it and, and you're kind of constantly playing this kind of balancing act between you know uh peace and violence and uh you know you don't want to tip uh, the scale so there's not much uh, like previously the, the, the British government would have knocked down quite a few uh, nationalist ones while the conflict was on um, and they would have preserved a lot of loyalist ones that you know uh, even if they were in nationalist areas or they're falling down like government money would have been invested in you know preserving it or even moving the wall that the mural was on when the rest of the building is gone that kind of thing but I think now it's kind of whatever like uh, i don't think there's too much um there, yeah i see and this is the case even with the sort of loyalist paramilitaries that might have at one time been at odds with the state their murals were sort of left untouched um yeah i like i i think the um the state itself ha- has only sort of begun to balance and when i when i talk about the state i don't mean britain i mean the the stormont assembly i think is is only sort of now sort of being balanced properly between nationalist and unionist but prior to that you know unionist politics would have had quite a big sway even at the like kind of local level so you could imagine like what a planning authority that was entirely staffed by people of a unionist background would think about a you know uh provisional ira mural that kind of thing um but i think now it's kind of it's sort of getting towards maybe um some sort of cohesion Um, that depends uh, actually now as well um as the largest unionist party in the uk uh, has elected a new leader who is uh, like kind of staunch creationist and um uh sort of racist uh person so they that they could it could quickly recede back into kind of um, a political deadlock, but I think at the moment it seems to be sort of working. Um, definitely better than it has any time prior to now. Was this the person you wrote your Vice article about last week? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Edwin Poots, uh, absolutely insane character, um, but he's essentially been he's been elected as a as the leader of the DUP, which is the, the largest kind of unionist party. Um, and that's maybe not a good sign. That could be a, that could be a bad sign for dialogue between the two parties um, and uh, between the DUP and Sinn Féin. Uh, and it could, it could create a lot of instability, uh, especially if, you know, unionist voters don't want to vote for a creationist and a homophobe. Uh, they might... Uh, they might kind of move away and that might kind of start destabilizing the political kind of balance uh, and that could that could result in uh, you know uh, actual instability uh, that kind of thing so yeah it's it's all kind of it's fine it's okay now uh, like there's not a, an active conflict but it's still kind of you know it's definitely not at a stage where it couldn't um, you could you like you could see like no no I don't think it could get as bad really as it was in the past but you know there's definitely a a propensity for uh for violence to kind of uh break out uh, at certain points that kind of thing I see right well I think we should probably wrap up around now um as with you know any subject I think you said at the start we could probably spend you know all day or week talking about this 
But I think you've done a very decent job of explaining it as comprehensively and as neutrally as one plausibly can. So yeah, I just want to thank you again, mate, for speaking with me today. It's been it's been fascinating, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Th- thank you very much, man. Thanks for having me on. No, um, at all. Yeah, no class. That was good. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. That was Spicebag, who you can find on Instagram at spicebag.exe. That's at S-P-I-C-E-B-A-G dot E-X-E. This is episode two of the Propagandopolis podcast. The first one was released last month and was on Soviet anti-religious propaganda. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, if you want to support the the podcast and the page, I have set up a Patreon. So that's patreon.com forward slash Propagandopolis. I think the lowest tier is something like £3 a month. There are higher tiers where you can get like discounts for prints, early access to, to limited run prints, uh, even a free book if you if you go for the top tier one. Uh, obviously, the more Patreon subscribers I get, the more I'll do. I have a few more podcasts in the pipeline at the moment. As I mentioned at the start, the next one's looking like it's going to be on the Napoleonic Wars, uh, specifically the Peninsula War. That should be pretty cool. Anyway, once again, thanks for listening. You know, anybody who's still listening now is an MVP. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope you'll enjoy the next one as well.